Amen. Good morning, Maple Grove. It, you know, I've recently become, I mean, when I say recently, like recently, within a week, started watching hockey. Because football's a long ways off, and, and uh, my baseball team is tanking, worst team in baseball right now, um, the Orioles, and I can't stand either of the teams in the NBA playoffs. There was a team I hated, and one I didn't care about, then that'd be okay, so I found something to root for. And, and watching the game last night and seeing the fans, it's, they're crazy, right? Fans are crazy. They're excited. Watch a little puck fly around. Yeah, nothing wrong with that. But, but I just want to ask you guys, you know, are you excited to be in church? Wow. <laughs> Woo! I'm seriously, right? I mean, are you excited about the reckless love of God? Man, that there's nothing he won't do, right? And no lie he won't tear down, no wall he won't knock down in order to come after you. And, and I'm not saying you got to jump up and down and start waving flags in the air right now, but, but I hope you're as excited about the fact that we have a God that loves us in God's grace as we are about a puck flying around or a guy hitting the ball out of the, out of the stadium or someone throwing a touchdown or winning the Super Bowl. Uh, perspective, right? And, you know, you don't have to go crazy, but it's kind of something to go crazy over. Uh, welcome to uh, week two of our series, Understanding the Bible. And uh, this series has two primary goals. Uh, to take a look at the overwhelming evidence that demonstrates, contrary to the onslaught of modern culture, that the Bible is not just another book or mere ink on paper, but that it really is from God, the maker of heaven and earth. And goal number two is to motivate, encourage, challenge, and inspire people to read the Bible like never before because it is from God and because in this series they will be given tools and principles that will equip them to understand the Bible better. And listen, I, I, I really hope that, that, that you are one of those people. I hope that you'll be one of those people that will be motivated and challenged and encouraged and inspired to, to, to read and understand the Bible like, like never before. Now, last week we talked about in a conversation called uh, We Can Trust the Bible, how if a, if a non-contingent, all, uncaused by anything else, self-sufficient, self-reliant, all-powerful, intelligent, always existent, unique, good and moral God who loves us were to write a book, it would be the most amazing book in all of human history. And I stand before you today to declare to you that the Bible is that book and that you can trust what the Bible says. Uh, understand the Bible is unique. It's in a class of its own. It's unique in its, in its circulation, in its composition. It's unique in its translation, in its survival, in its, in its influence, in its ongoing universal appeal. Uh, the Bible is accurate. It's accurate historically. It's accurate in its text. The Bible is supernatural. It knows some stuff that only God could know. Fulfilled prophecy, uh, pre-scientific knowledge. And the Bible is transformational. It changes the lives of of people. And listen, if you missed last week's uh, message and you want some ammunition you know, to defeat those out in our culture whose goal is to derail, right? To derail and damage your faith in the Word of God, then you need to check it out online, right? Uh, some of the stuff we talked about, because the Bible is being attacked all the time. Now, don't believe this book. It's just something guys threw together. No, it's not. It is the very Word of God. Let's do this. Week two, a conversation called the story of the Bible. 
And I want to start off with three passages, one from the Old, one from the Gospels, and one from the New Testament. One from the Old Testament is from Isaiah chapter 9, which is written to God's people when they were going through some very dark and difficult times. Ever been there? And these words were especially addressed to those from the tribes of Zebulon and Naphtali, people who lived around the region of the Sea of Galilee. Again, things are rough. Times are dark and the outlook is gloomy, gloomy, and we read this. I love this word. <laughs> nevertheless. Look three people in the eye and tell them, nevertheless. Nevertheless. Nevertheless, that time of darkness and despair will not go on forever. I mean, some of you need to hear those words today, right? It's not going to last forever. The land of Zebulon and Naphtali will be humbled, but there will be a time in the future when Galilee of the Gentiles, which lies along the road that runs between the Jordan and the sea, will be filled with glory. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a, a light is dawn. For thus a child is born, thus a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and your burdens and sin as well. And he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the greatness of his government and peace, there will be no end. Yes, darkness and despair will not go on forever, but his peace will live forever and ever. He will reign on David's throne and over the kingdom, establishing upholding it with justice and righteousness from that time on and forever the zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. And next is from Gospel of John. And you've heard these words countless times, but please don't let them lose their power. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him, all things were made. Without Him, nothing was made that that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of man. The light shines in the darkness, but the darkness has not understood it. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. And the next passage I want to read is from the book of Thessalonians. Paul wrote this in about 50 A.D. And, and, and I cannot imagine over those last 1,968 years or 708,320 days, yeah, my favorite subject was math, <clears throat> how many people have been encouraged by these words all across the world for centuries? Now, dear brothers and sisters, once you know what happened to believers who have died so that you will not grieve like people who have no hope. For since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. We tell you this directly from the Lord. We are still living when the Lord returns. We'll not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a command and shout, with the voice of the archangel, with the trumpet call of God. And first, the believers who have died will rise from their graves, that together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds 
to meet the Lord in the air. Then we'll be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these words. Father God, we thank you for who you are, that you're holy, that you're mighty, that you're good, and that you have a reckless love for us. And God, we thank you for your word. And I pray this morning, God, that as we see, maybe for the first time, a reminder of the story of the Bible, that our hearts will burn. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, in Luke 24, the, the recently risen Lord does something, he does it twice. First to two guys he was walking with on the road to Emmaus. Uh, these are two guys who were very discouraged. Their face were downcast. And two guys who just could not believe the women's report that the tomb was empty and that Jesus was alive. And, and, and they even said as much to Jesus as he walked on the road with them. And then Jesus said to them, how foolish you are and how slow to believe. Think you'd ever want to say that to you or me? How foolish you are and how slow to believe. All that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Messiah have to suffer these things to enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in all the scriptures concerning himself. And then later after Jesus had, had left, we read in verse 32, uh, they asked each other, were not our hearts burning within us when he talked with us on the road and opened up the scriptures to us? You see, their hearts were burning when Jesus opened up the scriptures to them. Their hearts were burning when they began to understand that all that the scriptures, beginning with Moses and the prophets, was talking about Jesus. Then a little later in Luke 24, he does the same thing to his disciples, but with them he goes even deeper because he doesn't just open up the scriptures for them, he opens up their minds because they really needed to get it because they were the guys carrying the message forward for Jesus. He said to them, this is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened up their minds so they could understand the scriptures so that they would see that all of Scripture has one ultimate purpose, has one compelling theme. I understand. See, it's, it's here where we see the crazy unity of the Bible, right? Despite being written, right, over a period of 1,500 years, 40-plus writers, three languages, three continents, right? In fact, that, you know, they didn't have books, right? You had to scroll here, one scroll there, one scroll there. Despite all that, you have this unbelievable unity of story within the Bible, the story of the Word become flesh, uh, the, the story of the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, the story of the soon returning King. Jesus opened up their minds so they could understand the Scriptures, and I, I, I want to attempt, at least in a small way, to do that very same thing, so that our hearts will burn. And our faces will no longer be downcast as we realize and understand that not only does the Bible have one ultimate, compelling, overriding theme, story, and purpose, but so does all of human history, the coming of Christ. Amen. Okay, let's walk through and open up our minds to the Scripture so we can see the story of the Bible. And now, now, why is this important to know the whole story of this book, right? It's a, it, it's a pretty big book over you know, 800,000 words. Um, 
it helps us understand the details, right? Like if you knew nothing about a movie and you jumped in an hour into the movie and watched, I should say The Matrix, right? <laughs> Some complicated movie. You jump in an hour in and you watch 30 seconds. Would you understand a whole lot what's going on? You'd be like, what the heck? I like jelly beans. You know, what, what are these pills you're talking about, right? Um, or or, or t- t- take a painting, right? You take that, that famous painting of, um, that, uh, uh, of, of God reaching out to Adam. Anybody ever see that picture? Sistine Chapel? Some of you have seen it in person. You know, I, I don't like you, okay? <laughs> uh, sorry, jealousy. Um, Madigan jealousy here. Um, but suppose all you saw was the picture of God with his hair blowing back, right? And that's all you saw. You think, what, did God get a new blow, hair blow dryer, right? You know, he's just, just blow dry his hair. Is that, is that what's going on? No, right? When you see the whole picture, you realize this is God reaching out, right? So it's so important to understand the big picture so that when you see the details, you understand that as well. And I hope that makes sense. If not, go to Walmart, buy a blow dryer, and it will. <laughs> and that makes no sense whatsoever. Uh, the Old Testament, um, Christ is coming. You see, when you boil it all down, uh, the coming of Christ is pretty much what the 39 books, 929 chapters, 23,214 verses, and the 622,721 words of the Old Testament are all about. I understand from, from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament resonates with the good news of great joy for all people. Good news that is intended to, to lift our faces and to ignite a roaring, living, sustaining burn into our hopes. Brothers and sisters, Christ is coming. And, and, and first, in, in Genesis, Christ's coming is revealed. And, and the reason I say it's revealed in Genesis is because Christ's coming was planned before Genesis. In Revelation 13, 8, God tells us that the Lamb was slain before the creation of the world. Understand, before God created the world, before he formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed life into him, God already planned on sending Jesus. Yes, Jesus' death on the cross was God's idea from before the very beginning. Get it? Good. Now, in the beginning, God created the world and everything in it. He created Adam and Eve, and he put them in this perfect garden paradise, a world untainted by sin and death and corruption. And they only had one restriction, one command, not to eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, right? I don't know how many trees there were, right? You know? Hey, all these other trees, if you get a boat, go down the river, there's more trees down the river, you can eat from every single one as much as you want. <laughs> but this one tree, you can't eat for it. They had a lot of options for good. So do we, right? There's so many good options, but we choose the bad. And that's what they did. They were tempted, deceived by Satan. They blew it, disobeyed God. God opened their eyes and realized that they were naked, they we're kicked out of the garden, and in Genesis 3.15, we find what is called the gospel in the garden. I will put an en- enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. You see, e- even though man had, had turned his back on God, God refused to turn his back on man. There's a verse in Samuel that I, I just really love. Maybe you've never heard it before. 2 Samuel 14, verse 14, says this. All of us must die eventually. Our lives are like water spilled out on the ground, which cannot be gathered up again. Encouraging, right? But God does not just sweep life away. Instead, he devises ways to bring us back 
when we have been separated from him. Don't you just love that verse? Man, God just say, hey, I'm done with you. He says, hey, how can I bring them back? And maybe that's you today. You've been doing your own, own thing. And God said, hey, how can I bring that person back? I'm not done with them. I'm, I'm not going to push them aside. I'm not going to kick them to the curb. How can I bring them back? In Genesis 3.15, God reveals that Satan would ultimately be crushed. The agent of the crush would come through the seed of a woman, Mary. But that victory over Satan would be painful, right? That his heel would be struck, that he would be crucified. And for centuries, Genesis 3.15 was the only star of hope that God's people had. Then after the flood in Genesis 9, God gives his people another star of hope as he reveals that one day God would dwell in the tents of men. And then in Genesis 12, God calls a man named Abraham and tells him that one day one of your descendants will bless all the nations of the earth. That descendant is Jesus. And as God's first book comes to its end, God reveals in Genesis 49 that one day a rest bringer. We call you some rest. A rest bringer would come from the royal line of Judah, bringing about a time of peace and great abundance. And Genesis, the coming of Christ is revealed. And from Exodus to Esther, we see preparations made for his coming. I understand. In these 16 books, Exodus to Esther, we see God preparing his people for the coming of Christ, and he prepares them in at least, at least five ways. Number one, by, by delivering them. Right, as Exodus opens up, God's people, they're, they're slaves in Egypt. And, and while slaves in Egypt, they, they were taught two things. Number one, we need to deliver. Number two, we are not that deliverer. And we read this, because God becomes that deliverer. He says, I've indeed seen the misery of my people in Egypt. I've heard them crying out because of their slave drivers, and I'm concerned about their suffering. God sees our misery, doesn't he? He hears our cries, and he's concerned when we suffer. So I've come down to rescue them from the hands of the Egyptians and to bring them up out of that land. I don't know about you, but I'm glad I serve a God who, he, who can bring me up out of, right? And no matter where I am, he's a God who can bring me up out of that bad place into a land good and spacious, flowing with milk and honey. Amen. So God delivers them to a servant, Moses. Next, God prepares his people by giving them his law. See, because God delivered them, they were not their own. Therefore, God had the right to expect some things from them. He says this in Exodus 20. Uh, by the way, if you accept the Jesus Christ, you're not your own either. <laughs> and God spoke all these words. Commandment number one, I'm the Lord your God who brought you up out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You see, God prepared his people by giving them the law, teaching them about sin, about obedience, about, about holiness, as Moses brings down from thunder in Mount Sinai the commandments of God. Next, God prepares his people by fulfilling his promise. You see, in the book of Joshua, God's new leader takes God's people into the, into the promised land and settles them in the land that God promises people 700 years earlier, teaching them that God keeps his promises. Listen, just because it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to happen. Amen? Right? He keeps his promises. A fourth God prepares his people by establishing the royal throne of David, through, whom, through whose bloodline the true king will one day come. The promise of David in 2 Samuel 7, your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. 
Your throne will be firmly established. Again, it's about preparing. And finally, God prepares his people by building them a temple to worship in, which gave them a place and a system whereby sinful people could approach a holy God. From Exodus to Esther, those 16 books, God prepares his people by delivering them, giving them his law, fulfilling his promise, establishing the royal line of David, and giving them a place to worship him. And in the poets, the next section of the Old Testament, we see this great desire for Christ to come. And the book of Proverbs, the desire is for perfect wisdom to be incarnate, and that wisdom is found in Christ. And Ecclesiastes, Solomon discovers the futility of life without God. He tried wine, he tried women, he tried wealth. He had more than anybody ever had, and it didn't work. He came up empty. You see, he discovered that true and lasting happiness meaning and fulfillment, are not to be found in anything under the sun, S-U-N, but rather in the person of the sun, S-O-N, Jesus Christ. Have you discovered that yet? I hope so. <laughs> Have I? Oh. And the Song of Solomon, Solomon aspires for perfect love and commitment, which is found only in Christ. I am my beloved, and his desire is for me. And in Job and Psalms, we see many direct prophecies about Christ. Job longed for a divine mediator who would stand between him and God. And he looked forward to the coming of his Redeemer. Job 19, I know that my Redeemer lives. And in the end, he will stand on the earth. And after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh, I will see God. I myself will see him with my own eyes. I am not another, how my heart yearns within me. David the psalmist longed for the coming of God's glorious son, Psalm 2. The great parable teller, Psalm 78. The Davidic king, Psalm 89. The royal priest, Psalm 110. See, David longed for the coming of the glorious perpetual reign of the Messiah. The next section of the Old Testament is, is the prophets. And, and I do, guys, what you know, I know I'm just like fire hosing at this, right? Yeah. It's online, and if you would like a copy of my notes, I'm a detailed note taker right? Send me a request, and I'll email them to you, right? So you want to just sit back and enjoy the movie? (laughs) They look forward to Christ coming with hope and expectation. You see, they lived during a time when God's people had turned their backs on God. Everything was rotten and decaying. God said of them, at this time, these people come near to me with their mouths and honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Justice was nowhere to be found. The poor were being oppressed. And this growing corruption would eventually lead to the kingdom being divided, brother fighting brother, right? And eventually God would use foreign armies, Assyria and Babylon, and the once mighty kingdom was no more. It was during this time, this dark time, this difficult time, this ungodly time that the prophets lived. And that's why they looked forward to, they, they clung to, they, and they spoke about with unwavering hope and expectation of the coming of a, of a new and better kingdom. Isaiah, who's known as a gospel prophet, in Isaiah chapter 11 talked about how, how this kingdom would be a kingdom united in peace and harmony. It would include all people. He said the lion would lay down with the lamb, right? Not to have a snack, right? It's figurative language, right? And what it's saying is that all barriers and walls between people would be broken down. 
And, and everyone would be included, and those who were enemies are now what? They're now friends. Isaiah also wrote a time when a new and better leader would rule over God's people. Isaiah 32, 1 and 2. A king will rule in a way that brings justice, and leaders will make fair decisions. Then each ruler will be like a shelter from the wind, like a safe place in a storm, the streams of water in a dry land, like a cool shadow from a large rock in a hot land. And as Isaiah 53, I'm not going to take time to read those verses. Isaiah looks forward to the coming of the suffering servant and the healing that he would bring from our sins. Isaiah looked forward to a time, he writes in Isaiah 61, when the good news would be preached to the poor, when the captives would be set free, when the broken heart it would be bounded up. Jeremiah talks about a time when God's going to make a new covenant with his people, and it's going to be a different covenant than before, and that God would forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The message of the Old Testament is a crisis coming, 39 books. That's what it's about. That's the big picture. And the Gospels, the message is, Christ is what? He's here. The plane touches down on the runway. The last line is thrown from the ship to the pier. The car pulls into the driveway, and suddenly all the energy and emotions of anticipation now shifts to an eruption of joy. Band is playing, the camera's flashing, the flags are waving, a husband embraces his wife. A teary-eyed dad holds a daughter he has never even seen before. A mom hugs her son who's now become a man. I mean, we've all felt those emotions, right? I mean, the joy can be overwhelming. The wait is over. Our loved one is here. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory. The glory of the one and only who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Understand, brothers and sisters, the wake that began thousands of years ago in the garden was over. The crusher has come. The Savior was here. And a great company of angels filled the sky and shouted out, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whose favor rest. As baby Jesus lay in the arms of Mary. The baby grew to be a boy, and he laughed, he ran, he played with his friends, wrestled with his brothers, worked with his dad in the carpenter shop. At the age of 12, he sat down with the religious leaders, listening and asking questions, and everyone who heard him was amazed at his understanding and his answers. And the boy grew to be a man. The scripture says he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. At the age of 30, Jesus began his ministry, and what a ministry it was. He healed the blind, healed the lame, the leper, even raised the dead. He changed water into wine, calmed violent storms. He, he walked on water. He multiplied food. And he spoke with authority and with insight into the human heart like no one ever else. I mean, once when some temple guards were sent to arrest him, and they came back empty-handed. And all they could say was this, no one ever spoke the way this man spoke. That's true. And no one ever spoke the way Jesus spoke, and no one, no one ever died the way Jesus died. Betrayed by a friend, abandoned by his disciples, put through a mock trial, beaten, spit upon, scourged, weakened, bleeding, forced to carry his own cross, huge spikes driven into his hands and his wrists. Yet on the cross, he still thought of others, his mother Mary, and even his enemies. Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. He was innocent. The Jewish leaders knew it. Pilate knew it. And yet Jesus did nothing, Right? 
to save himself. Understand, the old hymn written in 1958 by Ray Overhort is right. He could have called 10,000 angels to destroy the world and set him free. He could have called 10,000 angels, but he died alone for you and me. Actually, he could have called a whole lot more than 10,000. In Matthew 26, Jesus said, put your sword back in its place. For all who draw the sword will die by the sword. Do you think I cannot call my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? I like math. <laughs> okay. A legion is 6,000 soldiers. 6,000 times 12 is 72,000. And we read in 2 Kings 19 that one angel killed 185,000 of the Assyrians. So how many people could 72,000 angels handle? 130 billion. That's free, right? In other words, he had some power if he wanted to use it, but his power was in his sacrifice. He died, was buried, rose on the third day. He's alive. He's alive. The victory's been won. The serpent is crushed. Sin has lost its power. Death is destroyed. And the grave has been defeated. Amen? Amen. I mean, do you feel the burn? I mean, do your heart burn? Does it burn at those truth, right? Yeah, I, I hope it does. The message of the New Testament, the rest of his Christ is coming again. He was meeting with his disciples for the last time, and he told them what your job is. Here's not your job. Your job is not to figure out when I'm coming back. Don't waste your time doing that. Your, your job is to become my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Judea to the ends of the earth. And then we read, after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes, and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going. I lived in Florida when the space shuttle went up. You automatically look up, right? And suddenly, two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? Like, hey, don't you have a job to do? It's time to get busy. The same Jesus who has been taken away from you into heaven will come back in the same way you've seen him go into heaven. Throughout the book of Acts and the letters, we hear him talking again and again about the coming of Christ. Paul writes, our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so they will be like his glorious body. Colossians 3, 4. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Peter writes, when the chief shepherd appears, you'll receive the crown of glory uh, that will never fade away. John writes, and now, dear children, continue in him so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. First John 3, 2, dear friends, now that we are children of God and what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for, she will, for we shall see him as he really is. Do you find it comforting and encouraging as we live in a rough and sometimes very dark and difficult world to set your sights on the future glory that awaits God's people? This world is not our home. We are just passing through, right? Jesus is coming again to take us home uh, to a world with, with, with no more sorrow, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, no more disease, no more anger, no more hateful speech, no more hateful 
social media posts, right? And then no more hunger, no more thirst, no more loneliness, no more fears, no more doubt, no more insecurity, no more feelings of inadequacy. That's where Jesus is taking us. Does your heart burn at the thought of his return? And finally, what was revealed in Genesis is fully realized in Revelation, where his coming is realized. As God pulls back the curtain, the word revelation means an unveiling. And God pulls back the curtain and lets us see Jesus in all his glory. I mean, for 22 chapters, God pulls back the curtain and allows us to see Jesus in all his glory. One thing becomes very apparent as he pulls back the curtain that when Jesus comes and he comes again and he will come again, it won't be like his first coming. Where he was mocked, beaten, spit upon, pushed, shoved, crucified on the cross, clothed only in the precious blood that flowed from his body. Listen, man will not beat Jesus anymore. Man will not mock Jesus anymore. Man will not do anything to him anymore. When Christ returns, he'll return in glory and will be clothed in power. And on his robe and thigh will be written these words, right? King of kings and Lord of lords. And every, everyone in heaven and earth will see him and everyone, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. See, the story of the Bible, in fact, the story and centerpiece of all of human history, whether or not people want to acknowledge it or not, is the coming of Christ. And Jesus himself said in Revelation 22, the final chapter of the Bible, behold, I am coming soon. Maranatha. I can't wait. You see, when we open up our minds, we, 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 see, we see that this book, right? This book is all about Jesus. Jesus is the story of the Bible, right? I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, Jesus is the story of the Bible, Right? In Genesis, he's the seed of woman. In Exodus, he's the Passover lamb. In Leviticus, he's a great high priest. In Numbers, he's a bronze serpent lifted up with healing. In Deuteronomy, he's a prophet like Moses. In Joshua, he's the captain of our salvation. In Judges, he's the deliverer of God's people. In Ruth, he's our kinsman redeemer. In Samuel, he's a faithful prophet. In Kings and Chronicles, he's the, he's the rightful king. In Ezra, he's the faithful scribe. In Nehemiah, he's a rebuilder of our broken lives. In Esther, he's our Mordecai. In Job, he's a divine mediator. In Psalms, he's God's glorious son. In Proverbs, he's wisdom incarnate. In Ecclesiastes, he is life's meaning. In Song of Solomon, he's the bridegroom whose desire is for us. In Isaiah, he's the suffering servant. In Jeremiah, he is the branch of David. In Lamentations, he's the weeping prophet. In Ezekiel, he's the rightful king. In Daniel, he's the fourth man. In the fiery furnace. And Hosea, he's the one who brings back his adulterous people. And Joel, he's the stronghold of the nation. And Amos, he is our burden bearer. And Obadiah, he's the Lord of the kingdom. And Jonah, he's that great foreign missionary. And Micah, he's the savior that comes from, from Bethlehem. And Nahum, he's the, he's the, 
He's the avenger of his adversaries. In Habakkuk, he's the victor over Satan. In Zephaniah, he is the Lord of righteousness. In Haggai, he is God's signet ring. In Zechariah, he's the pierced one. In Malachi, he's the son of righteousness. In Matthew, he's the royal king. In Mark, he's the servant of God. In Luke, he's the son of man. In, in John, he's the word become flesh. In Acts, he's the risen Lord and fire of his church. In Romans, he's our justifier. In Corinthians, he's our sanctifier. In in Galatians, he's our robe of righteousness. In Ephesians, he's the grace that saves us. In Philippians, he's the one for whom every knee will bow and tongue confess. In Colossians, he's the, he's the all the fullness of God in bodily form. In Thessalonians, he's a soon returning Lord. In Timothy, he's the one who saves even the worst of sinners. In Titus, he's the one who pours out his spirit to renew and refresh us. In Philemon, he's the one who sticks closer to us than a brother. In Hebrews, he's both high priest and sacrifice. In James, he's the tamer of our tongue. In Peter, he's the chief shepherd. In, in in 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, he's the love of God. And, and Jude, he's the one that can keep us from falling. And in Revelation, he's the King of kings, and he's the Lord of lords. He's everywhere. It's all about him. This book is about him. And how crazy that a book written over a period of 1,500 years, 40 different men, three languages, three continents would have this same unifying story, right? That Jesus is coming. That Jesus is Lord. And he is coming again. Check out this verse that we'll wrap up with from Hebrews. Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. And, and I would be amiss, right? You know, I'm waiting for that, right? Woo! Come on, bring it. Because I, we ain't even tasted salvation yet, right? I mean, we even have the appetizer, right? We could just see the appetizer in the cart, right? I mean, this, the full meal is coming, and I want it, right? I, I want it. I'm waiting for that salvation. I'm waiting for that perfect world. I'm waiting to never let God down again. I, I'm waiting to shed all my stupidity, right? I, I'm waiting to be who God wants me to be and see him for who he really is. I can't wait. I just got to ask, are you ready? You know, I, I mean, really, are, are you ready? Have you surrendered to Jesus? Maybe you have. If you have, celebrate him. Get excited about the story. Uh, but if you're here today and you've never surrendered to him, not a bad idea to do so. <laughs> because he is coming back. And if, you know, he told us it's not our job to figure out when. You know, but he texted me this morning. No, he didn't. <laughs> But what if you knew, and just seriously, what if you knew that at 2 p.m. today, the sky's going to crack open, the archangel's going to shout, and the trumpet's going to blow loud, and he's going to return? Are you ready? Are you ready? He could come at any time. Not a scare tactic, just reality. 
you know, if you're Christian and you're just lukewarm, it's time to heat your butt up, right? <laughs> you know, it's time to get going again, right? If you're not surrendered to him and talk to me, uh, you know, if you've never repented of your sin and been baptized, I encourage you to do that. That's what we see people doing in the Bible. You want to talk about how to get right with God? We can do that. Guys, would you stand and pray with me? Jesus, we love you and we thank you for who you are. God, we thank you. Thank you for this story. Lord, you know, there's so many news bulletins and alerts everywhere, God, that tells us what's important. But God, how comforting to know that, you know what? The only story that matters is Jesus. That he came and that he's coming back and that he loves us and he's got this thing in control. And so, God, I pray that as we continue to sing and worship, God, that you just move on our hearts. And, God, for those of us who, who have allowed our, our love for you and passion for you, commitment to you to kind of be lukewarm, Lord, I pray we realize, you know, that lukewarm is not good enough. If anyone's in here, God, who is not sure that if you came today, be, they'd be ready, Lord. And I pray you would move them to, to grab me now, grab me after service. In Jesus' name. Amen.